title of this sermon is Intimacy with the Sovereign on His Terms. Do you like being controlled? Do do you enjoy having someone else direct you? To say, don't go that way, turn around, go this way. You know, when I look in myself, I see a real aversion to that. Even when it's someone I love and respect, like my wife, right? So if we're driving together and I'm going one route and I turn left, he said, oh, you should have turned right there. That would have been a better way to go. There's something inside of me that bristles. I can listen to Google Maps tell me where to go, but if Beth tells me where to go, there's something I don't like about that. Do you feel the same? Do you chafe at control? We human beings are rebels at heart. From the time of Adam and Eve, we, like sheep, have gone astray, turning each to his own way. Especially we Americans like to assert, I'm the master of my fate. No one controls me. And so... Many of us assert there is no God in control, or we imagine an impossibility. That there is a God in control whom we can control, right? A genie in the bottle, right? That we rub it, or in the, whatever that's called. (laughs) Not the bottle, the lamp. Rub the lamp, out comes the genie. He can do anything, but we can control him, right? And so, false religions have had some aspect of that always. Through bribes, offer this, offer that, and then we can make this all-powerful being do what we want. Or through certain incantations, through prayers, through words that we repeat, or through worship, attending services, through good works. We can point to our Muslim friends and see this so clearly, right? If I, if I give alms, if I make the hajj to Mecca, right? If I say, repeat those prayers five times a day, then I'll make it more likely that Allah will bring me into paradise when I die. But it's very similar amongst many who call themselves Christians, right? I just live a moral life. I attend church services. I give to the church or I give to some television preacher. Then, 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 this all-powerful God will do what I want. I can manipulate him in that way. And so when we do such things, we're trying to come to God on our terms, trying to control the uncontrollable. 
But there is a God in control who will not be controlled. He is so much in control, as this psalm tells us, that he's over every detail of our lives. Every detail of the lives of all 8 billion of us on this planet. Yet that very power, that very sovereignty, that very majesty shows him to be caring and loving. He knows, he manages the intimate details of your life. He not only knows them all, he directs them all. And through his controlling the life of one man, his son, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, he made a way for you and for me, rebels at heart that we are, to be part of his family, indeed to be his delight, to be his precious child. You and millions more. And he knows, he loves, he directs, he controls every single one. Those are his terms. I am in control. I love you with an everlasting love. Don't try to manipulate me. Don't rebel against my control. Remember what Paul tells us about his own conversion. Remember what Jesus, the risen Jesus said? Why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you rebelling? I'm prodding you and you're resisting. Well, Psalm 139 brings out these truths in a marvelous, marvelous way, telling us to turn to him and telling us that we can have this intimate, life-giving relationship with him. So let's look at this psalm, and after a brief look at the setting, examine it under three headings. First of all, who is God? then Jesus and Psalm 139, and then finally, our response. Who is God? Jesus and Psalm 139, and our response. But first, the setting. When we read this psalm or recited it, if you memorized it, what did you think when we got to verse 19? Oh, that you would slay the wicked. There's a temptation to focus on the great theological truths of verses 1 to 18, the wonderful prayer in verses 23 and 24, and just to ignore right, those four verses in between. Because those verses make us uncomfortable. Many look at them and think, Is this just an Old Testament attitude? Are these words even consistent with loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us? 
I suggest that these verses are absolutely key in understanding Psalm 139. Indeed, I think they're key in understanding how we see Jesus in this psalm. So we're going to go into that under the second heading, Jesus and Psalm 139. But for now, just look at the second half of verse 19. David writes, O men of blood, depart from me. This is the 19th verse of the psalm, right? And only now does he get to the setting of the psalm. David is under attack. He's being pursued by enemies who want to kill him. That's the setting in which he writes this psalm. And yet he doesn't pray, oh Lord, protect me. There's nothing wrong with a prayer asking for protection. He does that in other psalms as we know. But that's not the way he prays here. So understand, David is not sitting under a tree at a glorious day like yesterday, right? Basking in the sun and thinking, oh God, you've searched me and known me. That's not his setting. He is under threat, under attack. He's about to be killed. He's in great danger. And in that setting, rather than go directly to asking for protection, he meditates on who God is and who he is. And then even then, he prays not so much for protection as for God's honor to be upheld. Okay, so remember that setting now as we go to these First 18 verses, who is God? We're seeing Jesus in the psalm. So who is God? Four aspects of who God is. First of all, God knows all. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Note the contrasts, which are used to show the extent of God's knowledge. He knows When we sit and when we rise. So those are two contrasts. He knows the path, so where I'm going, and he knows when I lie down, when I stop going. Okay? So he knows when I'm moving, when I stop. He knows when I sit, when I rise. He's acquainted with all my ways. Every road that I take, He knows it. He knows my thoughts even before I speak. He knows what I'm going to say. Now, Beth and I have gotten like that, right? Sometimes we hardly need to talk. She'll she'll begin to say something, and I know exactly what she's going to say, right? 
That's what happens after 42 years of marriage. But God is like that with every one of us. We, we don't even know what we're going to say. And he knows. It. But also think of this word, no. And think of that relationship with my relationship with Beth. It's not just that I know the words that are going to come out of her mouth. It's that I know her. I know her person. I know what she is like. I love her. I've seen her react in so many different circumstances. I know her weaknesses. I know her strengths. And I love her. And think of the way that word know is used in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament can be used of sexual relationships between a man and his wife. And so included in that idea is no, is more than intellectual knowledge. It is a personal knowledge. He knows us personally, lovingly. So think of that passage we read from John chapter 1, a a lovely vignette, right? Philip goes, brings Nathanael to Jesus, and and, and Nathanael's quite skeptical. Is anything good going to come out of Nazareth, that backcountry place? And Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael's amazed. How do you know me? How do you know me? Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus knew Nathaniel. Not just that he was under a fig tree. He knew he was. He knew his person. He knew he wanted him as a disciple. And he knows you. He knows he wants you as a disciple. Who is God? He knows all. Secondly, he is present everywhere, verses 7 to 9. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Another contrast, right? Heaven the realm where God is clearly in control, Sheol, the realm of the dead, that seems almost beyond God's control. But those are the extremes. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, just stop there. The wings of the morning, that's the east, right? I take to the wings of the morning... The uttermost parts of the sea, for the people in Israel, what's the sea? The sea is the Mediterranean, that is to the west. The uttermost parts of the sea would be way over by Spain, right? And so he's going from the east to the west. We can go like Jonah, trying to flee to the uttermost parts of the sea where he hoped God wouldn't be, and God found him. 
there and brought him back east where he was supposed to go, right? So God controls all of those areas, every, even those places where we might not think that he is. But one more item here. To the ancient Israelites, the sea was scary. It seemed uncontrollable. Because these had, you know, small boats that were in great danger if a storm came up as it did when the Apostle Paul was in one. There was little they could do to protect themselves. Many drowned at sea. And so the sea was pictured as this uncontrollable entity and thus was used as a picture of rebellion against God. And so, even if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, God is present. There's no place we can go where he's not with us. So, God knows all, he's present everywhere. Third, he controls all of our actions. We're going to skip verse 10 for now, come back to it. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. That verse can begin, if I say in the ESV, another rendering of that can be, and then I thought, surely the darkness shall, what? ESV translators are thinking of this as I'm trying to hide, right? Truly the darkness shall cover me. But this is the same word which is used in Genesis 3.15. Satan will bruise his heel, and the same verb, and he will, the descendant of Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. Same word. Put crush in there. And then I thought, surely the darkness shall crush me and the light about me be night. If we render it that way, the darkness is a danger. I'm not going to the darkness to hide from God. The darkness is frightening. And so think metaphorically of that darkness as everything that's opposed to the light of God. God's enemies, natural disasters, pain, suffering. This is going to crush me. You felt that way, haven't you? I have no hope. This darkness is going to overwhelm me. And even what seems like light is going to turn to darkness. And David says, if I think that, that darkness is not dark to God. He's in control of that too. The night is bright as the day. Now back up to verse five. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hands upon me. Here we get this image 
that is against our natural inclinations, right? Ooh, do you like to be hemmed in? Mm. And when you look at this word, it's even worse than that. It means to encircle, and that's the way, that's why the translators here use hem. That's a perfectly good translation. But it's also used when a foreign army comes and besieges a city. Okay? So you besiege me. You're all around me. And you lay your hand upon me. Think of verse 10 in this regard also. Even there... He's just talked about the wings of the morning and the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So we have these two images in verse 5 and verse 10 of God's hand being on us. And so I want you to think of a time when you were growing up. I don't know all of y'all's situation growing up. Some of you may have had bad fathers, but let's assume you have a loving father, okay? A loving father. And he puts his hand on you. What are the different ways he might put his hand on you? Right? He might put his hand on you as a symbol of affection. Right? It's loving, caring. It shows that he's concerned for you. He might put his hand on you for support. Right? And so you're, you're, you're walking on rough ground. And you're just two years old. And so he holds your hand or he puts his arm around you, even lifts you up to, to carry you over those obstacles that you couldn't navigate on your own. He could put his hand on you for discipline, right? A spanking, which I received many of growing up. And he might put his hand on you for guidance, right? Think about this. Well, I'll actually tell a story, not of me as a son, but of my sons. One of my sons, who will go unnamed, would sometimes talk back to his mother. None of you kids ever talk back to your mother, do you? And I don't remember what he said at this moment, but Beth had told him to do something. And he was very snarky in his reply. And so I put my hand on him, right? I put my hand on his shoulder and pulled him. So that afterwards, years later, a decade or so later, he told me, Daddy, I thought you were going to kill me. (laughs) So that was not a loving affection. That was guiding him in the way he needed to go, right? Or think of a child who's about to run out into the middle of the street, a little little kid, and the father puts his hands on their shoulders and forcibly turns that child around. That child is not happy about that at the moment, right? But the daddy is helping that child to go where he needs to go. So God's hand is on us in all those ways. Affectionate, support, disciplining, 
guiding, sometimes forcibly guiding us where we don't want to go, but where we need to go. He controls all our actions. And we have this inner desire not to be controlled in this way. And so we rebel against it. But it's for our good, for our benefit. So he knows all he's present everywhere. He controls all our actions forth. He arranges all that we are and do. He not only controls us, he arranges everything. And this is these, these great verses from 13 to 16. What we are and what we do. He arranges all that we are, 13 to the first part of 16, and he arranges all that we do, the rest of 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. So let's just stop there for a minute. He arranges all that we are. This metaphor is marvelous, right? He knits us together. He weaves us intricately. So imagine a piece of material, a cloth that you look at and you think, that's really beautiful. Now, what color is it? Well, it looks kind of royal blue. And then you get a magnifying glass and you look at it and you see what makes it so marvelous is that it's not just completely blue, right? But there's blues, there are reds, there's purples, and there are all these tiny little fibers that are intricately woven together perfectly so that when you stand back from it, you get this impression of utter beauty, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So God has that power. He has that sovereignty. He knows. He controls. But this section shows us he cares about the intimate details of our lives, the intimate details of who we are. He made every aspect of us. And so that if our hairline is receding, right, or if we're 5'7 or 6'6, or if we tire when we're around people a lot, or if we get energy, from being around people for hours and hours. He fashioned all those details in us, making us exactly the way he wanted us to be. Now the rest of that verse, 16. In your book, One commentator calls this a tablet of destiny. Think of that. that. In, In your book, in your tablet of destiny, were written every one of them, 
the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So God knows what we're going to say before we say it. And at least for the moment of conception, he knows. He's written in his book, all our days. Not one of them has come about. And they're all written. So all that we are, integrately woven, all that we do every day of our life, God arranges all of that. And thus the title, Intimacy with the Sovereign on His Terms. He is the Father. He guides us. He directs us. He makes us in his image. And he takes us as rebels with this resistance to his control and says, come be part of my intimate family. As Jacob has talked about from Mark, come be an insider of the kingdom. We don't look that way. Some of us look like outsiders and we're really insiders. Some look like insiders and really outsiders. But you insiders, as Jesus said, who is my mother and sister and brother? He who does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. So this is who is God. He knows all. He is present everywhere. He controls all our actions. He arranges all that we are, all that we do. And we have to respond to that. But before we look at our response, let's turn to Jesus in Psalm 139. Jesus lived every moment of every day in light of these four truths that we have just enumerated. Remember what he says time and again in the Gospel of John. One example, 638. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but what? But the will of him who sent me. And then, as we were just recently reminded last weekend, when Peter draws his sword to prove to Jesus he's not going to deny him and that Jesus needs his help, what did Jesus say at his arrest? Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I come to do the will of him who sent me. Not my will, but yours be done. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's that knowledge of these very truths that enabled Jesus to live out what the author of the book of Hebrews tells us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. So now, with that in mind, thinking of Jesus as knowing that God knows all, he's present everywhere, he controls all our actions, he arranges all that we are into with that strong sense that God The Father sent him here to fulfill a plan, to do tasks, to redeem mankind. 
to glorify God through the creation of a people for his own possession. Now, think of verses 19 to 22, these difficult ones, as Jesus' attitude. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Jesus, through these words, is identifying himself with the Father. David, with these words, is identifying himself with God. David wants God to slay the wicked because, verse 20, they misuse his name. They hate God, verse 21. They rise up against God. That's why he counts them his enemies. So David writes these words, are they true of Jesus? Remember what Jesus did to the money changers in the temple. John chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus doesn't you know, walk in and be overcome with anger and suddenly, out of control, drive them out. John 2.15 tells us he made a whip. Now, that takes some time, right? He made a whip. And then he takes that whip. And he whips at those people, the money changers, and drives them out of the temple. And the disciples remember the prophecy, zeal for your house will consume me. That's Jesus when he is on earth to live a life and to die for sinners. But the risen Jesus, as Revelation 19 tells us, will have a robe dipped in blood and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread, listen carefully, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so in Revelation 6, the kings and the great ones on the earth say, stones, rocks, fall in us, hide us from the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. is ironic, the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is kind to every person he meets, including these money changers. He loves every person he encounters as he loves himself. And he tells each person, he does for each person exactly what that person most needs. Those money changers needed that. And maybe some of them were brought to repentance through that. We can pray that they were. As he loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him, he also knew 
and expected and anticipated and desired to righteously implement perfect justice on rebels against God, on Satan and his minions. To be identified with God, to be in intimate relationship with him, necessitates hating those who ultimately are God's enemies. Ultimately is an operative word there. Not prejudging the way many Jews did about non-Jews. Oh, those, you know, we can just forget about them. Not looking down our noses. Oh, we're so great. They're all idiots. They're all rebels. They're all lost. Oh, those Muslims over there. We don't care about them. They're, they're heretics. Let them all rot in hell. No, no. But those who are ultimately God's enemies, who reject him, who continue for all eternity as rebels against God, yes. And so we are to be able to say, again, as Revelation 19 says, He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Praise God. Okay. Our response. There's only two ways to respond to a God who is knows everything, who's in control, who arranges all the details of our lives, who puts his hand on us and directs us and guides us. Only two responses. We either rise up against him and hate him, or we humbly respond to his leading and guiding. Those who rise up against him and hate him, those are the objects of verses 19 to 22. Two aspects of our humble response. First of all, all these truths overwhelm us. Look at verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. So he's just talked about the, the, the setting of intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your hand is on me. And I think how precious to me are your thoughts. In part, that means all these thoughts of me, you've written in your tablet of destiny, all the days of my life. I I can't even imagine that, God. And so personalize that, right? How precious to me are your thoughts about me, O God. But then generalize it from that. Once you personalize it, generalize it. How precious to me that you have written in your tablet of destiny the days of all 8 billion people on this earth. I can't even imagine it. Such knowledge is so fantastic. How how do you do that, God? How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they're more than the sand. No kidding. Eight billion people, all the days of their lives, every moment, every day. I awake and I am still with you. I think the idea there is that he's been contemplating God. You know, his enemies are right there trying to kill him. He's been contemplating God, praying to him, 
and he's at such peace as he contemplates these aspects of who God is, he falls asleep in the midst of his reverie. And then he awakes. He's still in danger, but he was so content in God's presence, he just falls asleep. He's protected. He awakes and God is still with him. Verse 6, same idea. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. That's part of our humility, friends. He's beyond us. He's beyond us. Way beyond us. As we saw in Psalm 131, we're like two-year-olds and our parents. A two-year-old can't understand all that his parents do and say the way his parents guide him. But we are like that. And thus, what we sang, what Paul says at the end of Romans 11, oh, the depth of the wisdom of the wisdom and of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It overwhelms us, such knowledge. That's the first aspect of our humble response, being overwhelmed. The second aspect, our will, like Jesus, is to do his will. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He's already said, you have searched me and known me. Right? That's true even of rebels, right? He has searched us and known us, every one of us, even if we're a rebel. But when we humbly respond, we say, do it more. Do it more and reveal to me. I know, Father, that within me there is nothing good. I know that apart from your mercy and grace, I am lost I know there is this rebellious streak within me. So even though I desire to follow you, even though I commit myself to following you, even though I'm not aware of any sin that's unconfessed in my life, I know, I know from all these years that there is rebellion within me. So search me and know me, try me, Know my thoughts, and some, some, some translations render that. Know my anxious thoughts, what worries me. See if there be any grievous way in me, grievous to God, right? Any root of bitterness, as the author of Hebrews speaks of it. Lead me in the way everlasting, not just lead me into the way which lasts forever. That's true. But lead me also qualitatively in the way everlasting, eternal life today. We know we're rebels at heart. We know how easily we go astray. As we read from Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so we ask him, search us, know us, open up to me what is grievous. Because, because we delight in him. We want that intimacy on his terms. We delight in dependence on him. We don't want to hide anything. We can't hide anything, right? So it's, it, it's stupid to even try to hide anything. But we admit it. We invite his attention. And so... As we read from Hebrews 10, 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, knowing that when we humble ourselves before him by his grace, through the blood of Jesus, he exalts us. In the great contest between the priests of Baal and Elijah, Elijah says to the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord, if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. There are a lot of people who seem to be limping between two opinions. But in the end, there's no one like that. In the end, we are all rebels, or we are all intimate children of God. So don't limp between the two opinions. Humble yourself before him. Delight in dependence. Jesus died so that you can be his precious chosen child. So come to him and say, you've searched me and known me. Search me. Know my heart. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together.